the course of my life so far, I have gotten an opportunity to see several astonishing things. Uh, several years ago, I was able to go to the Grand Canyon and stand on one of the ledges and look out, and it was more than you really could take in. If you've ever been there, uh, just a couple, a few years ago, I got to go up to Lake Louise in Canada, one of the most stunning lakes within the mountains. Uh, it was very much astonishing. It was one of those things, again, that you observed and really just could not drink in everything that you were seeing. But it's one of those things you tell people about. You go and you say, you know, I saw this and this was astonishing. Or people who shared the experience will talk to each other and say, yeah, that was pretty incredible. Uh, we have all perhaps maybe seen some astonishing things. This morning we return to the book of Matthew. Uh, up to this point, Jesus has been telling us several parables. And those parables have really been about why we should follow him. And the primary reason is like Jesus' kingdom, or is that Jesus' kingdom, is going to grow. Unlike other earthly kingdoms, Jesus' kingdom will be and is being established. Every time uh, a soul is saved, every time the word is read, heard, or shared, uh, the kingdom grows. Jesus also tells us his kingdom will judge all other kingdoms. It is the kingdom of Jesus Christ that will judge the sins and the good works of America, Australia, the Greek Empire, Great Britain, the Navajo Nation, and any other kingdom you can think of. Jesus, for us, is a great treasure. The wealth we obtain, we obtain by having him. Now, after this, after these parables, and starting with our text this morning, Matthew's going to focus on the response so Jesus tells a number of parables, but over the next few chapters, Matthew is going to tell us, in fact, 16 different responses to Jesus. Now, seven of those responses are going to be negative. Five are going to be positive, and the rest are going to be indifferent. Now, what's interesting is as we work through these responses, we're going to see the disciples kind of work through the same process, negative, positive, and different responses. Now, in our text this morning, Jesus returns to his hometown. And we've already read the passage, so we know what the response is. So what I want to do this morning is I want to take four points and show you the progression of their response, the steps that were involved, as we see, in their rejection. So their negative response. So let's work through this, four points for you this morning. Number one, the first thing that happens here is that Jesus is recorded as astonishing with his teaching and work. So we're told in verse 54, they hear Jesus preach, they see what he does, and they are astonished. They have never seen something like this before. They are overcome with the ability to describe what they're seeing. And so it's the idea that they, they're not sure what they're looking at, but it is overwhelming. But as we'll see in a moment, their response is quickly going to turn to cynicism and skepticism. There's a group out there, can't think of their name at the moment, they're very anti-Christian, and one of the things they have out there is this challenge. They say, if, if God would regrow somebody's limb, and they get to see it, they would believe in Jesus. There's a, a group called the Skeptic Society, it involves a number of celebrities, and every year they gather in Vegas and they invite people who call themselves psychics or uh, miracle workers, and they invite them to come in and, and prove that they can do what they say they can do. And they present themselves as if you can astonish them, they will believe. 
Well, what we see here in Nazareth, or yeah, in Nazareth, we see that they are astonished, but their attitude, as we'll see in a moment, is quickly going to turn to skepticism. In the book of Acts, Paul will preach Jesus, and in some places, people will think that Paul is the God. They aren't astonished with Jesus, they're astonished by the miracle. We read the New Testament, and we see that people are first astonished by Jesus, but then suddenly they're pulled away by something else. There may be God, they go to the next thing. They're through the, the next thing that tickles their fancy, the next thing that makes them say, wow. In our last church, um, we were in an area where there were probably some 20 churches that were just like ours in, in doctrine and practice and the kind of preaching you would hear. 20 churches, and there was a small group of people that every pastor in the area knew just did nothing but one from one church to the next looking for the new preacher, looking for the new service, the new music. They, they wanted to continuously be astonished. But the people's response is not the measure. We have to remember that just because somebody isn't astonished doesn't mean that what happened wasn't astonishing. Read the Gospels and you see blind men who can see. Read the Sermon on the Mount, the most profound utterance of all time. You watch the dead come back to life. Certainly, if we would read with child's eyes, maybe hearing the stories for the first time, we would once again be astonished. But what Matthew establishes here at the very beginning is when Jesus came and he spoke, this wasn't a secondary ministry. He did what he did everywhere else, and the people heard him, and they saw what he did, and they were what? Astonished. Now, over the years, many people have tried to explain this away. Explain the, the astonishing things that he has done. The astonishing things, the miracles. They've tried to go say, well, this is really what happened. Or they try to say, well, maybe that's not exactly what he said. Maybe it was changed over the years. Maybe these were stories that people made up. And the evidence again and again and again has proved, no. What we have in our Bible is what the original authors wrote down. What we have in our Bible is overwhelming, uh, accurate to the historical ideas of the time. And so what we are left with is an account of a Middle Eastern Jewish man who said and did things over a three-year pe uh, period that people responded to, and, and the Bible over and over will say they were astonished. Now, see, ever the disciples and people ever since then, anybody who's read the gospel accounts, everybody's in the same place. Let's just start there. We're all in the same place. When we read about what he says and we read about what Jesus does, we are confronted with something that is astonishing. And so, first of all, the question we are asked then is how will we respond to being astonished? The second point then is here. The people in responding to their astonishment, number two, the people search for reasons to not believe. They search for reasons not to believe. Uh, Matthew here doesn't just tell us they rejected him. They, he reveals for us the questions they begin to ask. And you begin to see in these questions they're searching for a reason not to believe or not to re have to respond to what they have just seen. The first set of questions is they begin to reject Jesus with his humble background. Their first reasoning, Matthew says, is, there, is this the carpenter's son? The idea there is one of a blue-collar worker. Remember Nathaniel said, what good comes out of Nazareth? 
Nobody came out of Nazareth. No great warriors, no legendary figures, no well-known family. Nobody came out of Nazareth. Now, it's interesting is the people of Nazareth are, are looking at Jesus and they're rejecting him on the basis of his lowly background. And so we can only assume then of this lowly town of Nazareth, Jesus' family was a lowly family. And people do not, if you know people, they do not want to be associated with what is lowly. We do not want to be associated with what is sick, what is lame, what is not working. That's why people, when a church gets to a certain size, many people will say, you know, I don't want to go there. It's too small. It, it, it feels too lowly. The second reason they find for not believing is Jesus' familiarity. He is familiar to them. Note that he have a series of questions that end with this. Are not all his sisters here with us? The idea here is that they knew Jesus' mom, they knew his brothers, they knew his sisters. They, and it's the idea that they knew this family. It's the idea that they saw them at the grocery store. It is the idea that they heard about Jesus' little brother getting his hand stuck in the cookie jar, or maybe one of his sisters tearing her dress as she walked through town. Normal people things. And they're saying, look, he's just too familiar. We know these people. They can't be special. Think, for example, years ago when we moved here, we had the opportunity to repaint several rooms in the parsonage. And when we got there, I remember people would say, oh, I really like these colors that you guys picked out. Several people said, I love the color, except for, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the far room that got painted, what was it, bright yellow or bright pink? Everybody, all the rest of the house, everybody's like, oh, those are really great colors. You know what? Those same people still come to my house. You know what they don't say? Those are great colors. Because, because they've gotten familiar with it. Those of us who live there don't look at our walls and go, that's a great color. It's just familiar. And that's the idea here, is that they, they look at Jesus, they see what he does that is astonishing, and they go, well... This guy can't be that big of a deal. We know his mom and dad. We know his brothers and sisters. The third reason they find not to believe is this, is Jesus' lack of education. They ask the question, where did he get all these things? They, see his, they hear his astonishing teaching and they see what he does, but Jesus was not, it was not taught, it was not educated in a way that finds him acceptable. We have to understand people back then were no different than us. Today, what do we want? We want the people who are licensed and certified. We want the people who went to this school and that school. We want the people who have a recommendation from this place or that place. And Jesus didn't have any of that. And so they looked at him and said, where did he get these things? So what I want you to see here in these questions is that these people looked for reasons to doubt. And the reasons they looked for reasons to doubt is because they were confronted with something astonishing, and that meant there were consequences. What I mean by is that they saw this astonishing thing, and the overwhelming evidence was that he was their Messiah. He was the one they needed to submit to. And so immediately, they're looking for a way out. How do I get out from underneath this confrontation with the astonishing? Now, as Christians, we are not free of this problem. Certainly this is unbelievers. Unbelievers often find reasons to doubt. But even as Christians, we still live in fleshly bodies. 
our nature still responds to the things of God. And, and many times our flesh will try and find a way to get us to doubt. Sometimes our flesh, our flesh knows our weakness. And so it'll chip away little by little, taking away the astonishing reality of Jesus. Or maybe our flesh will try to get us to play dress up and, and maybe pretend that we're responding to the astonishing reality of Jesus, but all we really are are pretending and playing dress up. Sometimes we get caught up, our flesh will take us down spiritual rabbit trails. Something will catch our attention, a particular ministry, a particular teaching, a particular type of music, something. And so we're taken away from responding to the astonishing reality of Jesus, and we're really just responding to a pet project. Another way is the flesh encourages us to know more, to be intellectual about Jesus, and, our, and it does it well in the side, it shrinks our hearts. And so what we're left with is that we are confronted with the astonishing reality of Jesus and, and our flesh tries everything to get us to doubt, to ignore, to not believe. The third thing we see here in their response is this, the people become offended. So they see this astonishing thing, they begin to try to find reasons to doubt, and now they become offended. That's what the text says. After the questions, they became offended. It is the idea of their determination. They were now determined not to believe. They became what the Bible describes as hard. Remember the parable of the sower just told just a few chapters earlier about the hard ground where the seed fell and nothing happened. Now, there were other places where, where the, the plant grew up, but it was choked out, and other places where the seed was taken away by birds, and some places where the seed fell and fruit was, came about. But this, this was the hard ground. Nothing happened. The concept of being offended is one that the Bible will bring up again later. In 1 Corinthians, for example, Paul says the gospel is offensive to the Jew. The idea being that it hardens the heart instead of softening it. We, Paul will encounter Gentiles who are offended by the gospel and they become violent. All of the apostles are murdered except for John. And it's not like he had a cakewalk as he was banished to the island of Patmos. There was no sandals resort there. We carry a message that is by its nature offensive. Now, we don't understand it from our side, do we? By God's grace, our eyes were open. We heard the gospel, and Jesus became a great treasure. And we, we find it hard to fathom why anybody would not want directions to a great treasure. And then we look around in our country today, right? And we look at our society, and we say, it appears. By all appearance, we see the gospel and Jesus Christ have become more offensive than it's ever been in our nation's history. I would like to challenge that. I think the gospel has always been offensive. I think what we're seeing is people have become more comfortable vocalizing that offense. It's always been offensive. The response has really not changed. And the reason I say that is because that's what the Bible says. There wasn't some magical moment a hundred years ago where everybody in the country's hearts were softened to the gospel of Jesus Christ. No. What we have today is a society that doesn't have a problem. They are just like Nazareth. They have their reasons for doubting, and they become offensive, and they're willing to vocalize it. 
then we look out, we look in places like Iran and China, and we hear the stories. In places where the government uses its power to try and squelch and suppress the gospel, and all it does is spread more and more. And then number four, the fourth thing that happens here is Jesus is rejected. In verses 57 and 58, we get an epilogue. First of all, Jesus says, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town or in his own household. This is a pretty straightforward idea. Just by experience, I can tell you it would be very difficult for one of my brothers and sisters to have me as their pastor. I've seen this over my years in ministry. A young man goes off to Bible college. He comes back, decides to be a preacher. He gets an opportunity to preach on a Sunday night or on a Wednesday night, and everybody gathers together, and they go, How nice! that this young man wants to be a pastor. They don't listen to the message he preaches. They don't hear what he has to say. They're just, how nice. Isn't he a nice boy? Or maybe a girl goes off to college, or maybe she comes back and her burden is for missions and a desire to serve the Lord, and she gets up and she shares about it to the church, and the church responds, how nice. How nice. But they don't see what God's doing. There are several examples in the Old Testament of this reality. We hear uh, for Vacation Bible School, we did the story of Joseph. Joseph, God gave Joseph dreams. Dreams that told him he was going to save his family. And how did his brothers respond? He ended up a slave in Egypt. Or think about it from another direction. God sent Jonah not to the people of Israel, but to the people of Nineveh. And a great revival broke out because of the preaching of a foreign missionary. But we see God did raise up in the Old Testament many different prophets, men and women from among the people. And all the response they got, Jesus will tell us later, all they did was kill them. Lastly, we know that Matthew gives us a concluding statement. Jesus did not do many works because of their unbelief. Now, this closing statement is meant to tell us two things. First of all, to tell us exactly their response. They did not believe. They were not indifferent. It was not the idea they were curious. It is not the idea that they were seeking. They did not believe. They saw this astonishing thing and they did not believe. But the second thing here I think is actually quite misunderstood. What Matthew is saying here when he says that that not many are healed is not the idea that their unbelief canceled out Jesus' power. What you have to do is compare it to the other towns that, they, that Jesus will go to. Many times Jesus would go to the synagogue and he would preach and he would do mighty works. And what were the responses? What was the result? He would go to somebody's house and the crowds would gather. And he would heal many, many people. The idea here in Matthew is that because of their unbelief, the crowds didn't grow. Nobody came. Maybe a few trickled in here and, uh, here and there. But because of their unbelief, nobody went to him. Now, as Christians, we've not rejected Jesus. We've heard and we believe again by the grace of God. So how does this apply to us? Well, first of all, Jesus tells us that if he's going to be rejected, we should not be surprised when we are too. I see this every time I interact with a Christian teenager. You can almost almost tell they know. Maybe nobody said it to them. They know if they get too serious about Jesus, they're not going to fit in. They know. They can feel 
That if they get further and further towards Christ, they get further and further away from the normal. They know that if they get too close to Christ, they will get to experience the rejection that Christ is rejected. Maybe some of us who are older have had those social situations where we knew that if we got too serious about our faith, we would be rejected. But I think there's another application. How easy is it to reject Jesus situationally? So you're a Christian this morning. You've heard and you believed and you're saved. But how many places in your life where you need a solution, where you need help, where you have a problem that needs solved, have you not allowed Jesus or rejected Jesus from being a part of the solution? Maybe you've never thought about how Jesus might affect your marriage or or, or your relationships. Maybe you've never talked about Jesus when it comes to your health issues or a problem at work. When's the last time you stopped and prayed and admitted to God that only by his grace your medication's going to work or only by his grace you'll be able to figure out what's wrong with that machine or only by his grace are you going to be able to find that missing invoice? Where have we rejected him in our life? So in this section, we learn about different responses and here are the people of Nazareth. They get a front row view. They see what Jesus says. They see what he does and they're astonished. But that didn't lead to belief. It led to skepticism and cynicism. And the end result was he was rejected. So the first question, is that you? Maybe you've sat in church and you've heard the astonishing reality of Jesus and you keep finding reasons not to believe. I encourage you to give that up. Maybe, Christian, there's still echoes of this in your life. Maybe you've found ways or reasons for Jesus not to be a part of this part of your life or that part of your life. Maybe you recognize that many times your flesh can draw you away with one of its many lures. Your call is to repent and to believe again the astonishing Jesus Christ. And let's pray. Jesus, uh, Jesus, we pray that you would help us to be a people, not just that we would come to faith. Lord, I thank you that many here this morning have come to faith. They have put their faith in you that they are saved. And Father, I also know that, as Paul says in Romans 7, where I desire to do good, there is always evil with me. Always somewhere in my life that wants to argue uh, Christ out of that situation, wants to say, no, this is not an area for him. I pray, Father, we would not be like the people of Nazareth. We would see what is astonishing. We would hear what is astonishing, and we would believe. And we would embrace. And we would follow Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.